Welcome to Boston's Best, a podcast where you go behind the scenes with financial planner Mark Condon as he asks industry-leading experts in and around Boston to talk about their businesses. Mark will find out what sets these companies apart from their competition and how they have risen above the inevitable challenges they have faced along the way to their ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Mark Condon. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to episode 84 of Boston's Best, brought to you by Condon Productions. The goal of this podcast is to highlight businesses in and around Boston. My guest on today's podcast is Petros Palangin. Petros is the founder of Good Filling. Good Filling is the world's first distributed refill service. Good Filling's mission is to make waste reduction accessible to all. They're changing the consumer packaged goods industry by making it easier to reduce and reuse than it is to recycle. Petros grew up here in Belmont, Mass, and he went to school down in North Carolina at Duke. Petros got into finance after he graduated, but it ultimately wasn't something he wanted to do for long. Petros grew up with a large family, and he was aware of the amount of waste the average household generates, and he wanted to do something about it. Insert Good Filling Company. Did you know that only about 9% of your average recycling bin is actually recycled? That's crazy to me. Petros and Good Filling provide stations about the size of an ATM machine that allows you to refill your laundry detergent, dish soap, hand soap, and cleaning products all the same machine for 20% less than you would pay off Amazon or Walmart. They're making a real difference in this world, and it's amazing to see. And be sure to listen to the end, as Petro shares the advice he'd give someone looking to start their own business and how he defines success in any given year. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Boston's Best. Good morning. This week, we have Petros Palangin. Petros is the founder of Good Filling. How you doing, man? Hey, doing well. Thank you for having me on, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to, excited to have good filling on here. I always like when I get emails from marketing people or interns or you know whoever assistants that just reach out and ask to come on the podcast. It makes my job finding people to come on the podcast a lot easier. So she did a good job reaching out. Yeah, it's it's a great podcast to be on and excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely, man. So before uh, before we get into you know good filling the company itself, to give us a little background on you, like you know where you grow up, where you're from, where you live. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Belmont, Massachusetts, grew up in a family of six. If my marketing team gave me good information like you, I've got an older sister and two younger sisters. Um, so hopefully oh. that's true about you. Wow. Okay. Very but, good. Uh, yeah. Greg grew up in Belmont down the road from my cousins. It was kind of like a, a stomping ground for us. We were like running across the streets to each other houses all the time. And after that, kind of went to school down in North Carolina, came back up to Boston for a few years and um, ultimately started a business up here. So nice. Where'd you go to school in North Carolina? Uh, Duke, which oh. might lose me some followers on this podcast. And I apologize <laughs> for that, but hopefully it gains me a few as well. <laughs> all good. All good. Not Duke's a great school. Um, would you go to college for? Uh, so I studied both econ and computer science. And yeah. so I, I kind of always thought I would start my own business in like software or something that, yeah. that seemed to be kind of the direction everything was going and eventually had that kind of existential dread that uh, made me realize I needed to do something in the sustainability space and I needed to solve some of these big issues and eventually ended up in uh, in uh, the sustainability space probably. Like how'd you go from possible software engineering thing to sustainability business? Like, is there a passion behind it or... Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely not the most direct of paths. So, I, I I was kind of the classic like college sellout of sorts who went straight into finance after graduating. Yeah. Uh, made a couple bucks, 
realized ultimately that that wasn't fulfilling enough for me and kind of knew that I needed to dedicate my life towards something that would be more fulfilling. And I figured I'd do something like like nuclear, do like solar, do something kind of more kind of CO2 related. Or just given some of my backgrounds, realized that, A, I wasn't really going to have as much of an impact in some of those spaces as I wanted. Um, but also there was a massive opportunity in kind of the waste field. And so some of it was frankly growing up in a family of six and having a mother who kind of immigrated from South Africa and kind of brought with her a lot of kind of different perspectives as it relates to waste. And so I, I very much grew up kind of in the household that was taking all of our cans to the supermarket and getting five cents for every can that we distributed, kind of trying not to waste as much as we can and using dishcloths instead of paper towels and stuff like that. Um, and so kind of naturally, kind of as I grew up, um, I looked for kind of ways to likewise kind of preserve some of the materials. And so I started going to these stores out in like Cambridge or out in Brookline, uh, that that are called like zero waste stores, where essentially you bring your plastic bottle or your glass bottle and you go and fill it up with dish soap or laundry detergent or you name it. But frankly, I was living such a busy life that it was near impossible to get out there. And so I, yeah. I just kind of relied on like CBS and Amazon and whatnot. And so it, essentially, I came to the conclusion like, hey, I've got to do something. I've got to make this more convenient for folks. There's a whole bunch of people that are kind of living busy lives who would love to reuse these bottles and ultimately produce less waste. How can I make it more convenient for folks? And so that was kind of the the segue into sustainability. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I mean, yeah, to be candid, I, I, I didn't even know those type of things existed that you can go and refill stuff like that. And I mean, I live in Framingham and as far as convenience wise, Cambridge is like the most difficult spot to drive into in and around Boston as it is. It's a nightmare at like noon on a Wednesday, you know, yeah. in general. So that talk about convenience, like I can definitely relate to that. It's not too many people are probably going to take the time to do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, like I said, I didn't even know those, those type of things existed. So as far as convenience goes, like what have you done to make it more convenient for people? Yeah. Yeah. So, so about two years ago, I started the company Good Filling. Okay. Um, and essentially over the last two years, we've effectively kind of recreated the milkman model. And so okay. I, I actually just learned that there is a milk delivery person that exists in some of the sub, uh, suburb areas. Yeah. But apparently I, I, I could pull up the name, but apparently it still exists, which is kind of wild to me. Wow. I thought I was kind of recreating it or bringing it back, but um, essentially we created this milkman like model where people would leave out their plastic bottles or their glass bottles. We would collect those glass bottles, bring them back to our kind of central HQ rinse them out, sanitize them, fill them back up with products and kind of redistribute them. And we, we, so we started there where it was like, truly it's your bottle. We bring it to our headquarters. We fill it up. We bring it back to you. And yep. the issue there is like the turnaround time on something yeah. like that was like three or four days. And yeah. When people need hand soap, they want it immediately. They don't yeah. want to wait four days, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. And so we started doing more of the milkman model where we would leave the filled ones, take the empty ones back, which worked great for a period of time, but ultimately saw a lot of opportunity to, to improve even that. And so most recently, and I can get into this hopefully kind of later in the podcast, we have these machines that much like the Coca-Cola freestyle machine where you yep. go up to it and select like, I want Coca-Cola and I want it to be lime flavored. Same thing, but for laundry detergent, hand soap, no stuff like that. And so the idea being like, stop throwing out your plastic bottles. They're all ending up in landfills. They're all ending up in ocean ways. Instead, bring it up to our machine, 
pour whatever product it is that you need right into it and keep using it over and over again. For the most part, plastic's meant to last hundreds of years. And so yeah. it's it's kind of goofy that we're throwing them out or or recycling them if they could last longer. So yeah, that, that was the impetus. Yeah. I mean, so when you say, and you did that air quotes when you said recyclable, so you probably know a little bit more about the industry than I do. Like what I, you know, we're recording this on a Tuesday, my trash and recyclable pickup is on a Wednesday. I know I actually just threw a dish soap bottle. I think it was like two days ago in the recyclables. Does that actually get recycled? Do you, like, do you know the process of that or? Yeah. So, so the general rule of thumb with plastics is about 9% of plastics get recycled. And and so it, it, it depends depends to a certain extent what type of plastic it is. And, and and that's where it can actually get really tricky where every township is slightly different based on whoever they ultimately partner with from a recycling perspective. And so if you think about like black plastic takeout containers, those are never recycled. Shampoo bottles that we have get recycled, maybe a little bit more so, but ultimately that process is actually, it goes to a recycling facility that recycling facility then collects all of the kind of plastics, ships it to Southeast Asia, which is unbelievable. They literally ship and like pack these things down, put it on a boat, send it to Southeast Asia, complete black box of what ultimately happens to it. At which point, hopefully they truly get recycled there and then shipped back to the US for a new consumer. But essentially what we're finding is that only 9% of those plastics that get shipped out there ultimately make their way back in the form of kind of recycled content. And the vast majority of them are ending up in riverways, ending up in ocean ways, ending up in landfills out there, or frankly incinerated. Wow. That's all sorts of health problems over there as well. So it's, it's a component of it's the health aspects, of, a component of it's cutting out some of the shipping of recycling. There's a whole bunch of different benefits to ultimately switching to reduction and reuse as opposed to recycling. Wow. That's, that blows my mind. Nine, like I'm sitting there thinking I'm doing a good thing. Like the average person like myself, like I have, I have no experience or really knowledge on the space at all. So I think I'm doing a good thing by putting everything in recyclables. And I mean, 9%, that's kind of, that's crazy to me. Yeah, it's it, it. It was definitely a wake up call for me. I, I didn't fully appreciate. It. I, I was the same boat. I I always thought, hey, at least I'm recycling. I've got yeah. friends who don't have a recycling bin, or or like if I've got a plastic coffee cup, like hey, at, at least I wait and I don't throw it in the first trash can I see. I wait to find a recycling yeah. bin. But I, I I guess it makes sense. I mean, to physically sort through all of that various plastic, it's often contaminated with X Y Z product and. The, the, the bigger problem is people keep throwing away kind of trash in recycling bins. And the way the process works as a whole is if that happens and the whole recycling batch gets contaminated and they throw away that entire thing. And so it kind of makes sense that only 9% of plastics get recycled. Yeah. When you bring it down like that, so yeah, because I can see a lot of people just throwing trash in a recyclable bin and just ruining the entire thing right from yeah. the get-go. Wow. All right. So when you decided to start Good Filling, you said uh, we're in 2022 now. So you started in 2020? Yeah. Okay. So, and how did you, you know, when you first started, like, how do you bring awareness to what it is you do? Like marketing, like just podcasts, like how do you, how do you bring general awareness to something in this space? Yeah. I, I mean, that's always been the hardest thing, um, especially with a message that is as tough as kind of our yeah. message where it's like, Hey guys, wake up. A lot of the stuff that you're recycling is uh, ending up in waterways and so on and so forth. It, it's hard to market something like that. People don't want to hear it, and so um, definitely had some some struggles early on as it related to what's the best way to express this. How do we create kind of a positive environment around this? How do we encourage folks, but kind of encourage them along their own journey? 
Yeah. And, and frankly, I'm not a marketer. I, I've never been a great marketer and I, I don't have a TikTok. I didn't have an Instagram before starting a company. And so I, I ultimately had to kind of rely on some other folks to, to help us out. And so Instagram has been a big one for good filling. We've got a really, really loyal and it's a pretty fun page too. A lot of memes, a lot of yep. pictures dogs and so on and so forth. And so that's been a big channel for us. We've jumped on a couple of these podcasts, which have honestly just been fun to talk about the founding yeah. store, to meet someone new, to to talk to the Boston audience broadly and a whole bunch of different ways. We do tabling events too. We go to farmers markets. We do a whole bunch of different things to just get the word out broadly. I don't know. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, it's not you know, it's not like this, it's not like a sexy clothing line or, you know what I mean? Like it's, so it's going to be more difficult, I would imagine, to get the marketing word out for this because you're ultimately doing good. It's just not like what catches people's attention immediately, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of people are just kind of unaware of this and yeah. um, definitely the like younger folks who are just graduating college where it's top of mind, like mm -hmm. that's, that's easy to go after, but I'm trying to target the broader audience of, Hey, everyone should be doing this. This is, this yeah. is super important for us all. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are some of the early challenges you faced starting your own company? And then give me like uh, an early success that you experienced where you said, all right, I got, I'm onto something here. Like this is a, uh, you know, I got to keep this going. No, I mean, there's a, you, you interview entrepreneurs all the time. There's yeah. so many challenges. And I mean, even last week or well, no, like a month ago, I mean, I was just demoralized and beat up. And I was saying like, I mean, I was kind of beating myself up. I'm like, hey, like, is this going to work? Is this the right thing to be doing? And then sure enough, like a week later, like five buildings reach out to me saying, hey, I want one of these machines and I'll get into the machines at some point. And so yeah. in terms of like actual challenges, I mean, a lot of them tended to be about marketing. We weren't hitting our audiences quite as much as we needed to. We had these these awesome kind of like trading posts, as we called them, um, that partnered with all of these buildings, but no one was ultimately using them. And so it was, how do we get the word out? How do we make this kind of the sexy thing to be doing? How do we um, capture some of those people? And so even though we had a really great distribution footprint, it was, how do we actually change consumer habits? And yeah. all of that kind of cast up over the COVID-19 crisis and so on and so forth, where people were just kind of like, resorting back to using Amazon and kind of taking the simplest route um, definitely presented a lot of challenges. And then I, th I think you asked about early successes. There's always a laundry list of challenges, but people usually have like an early success that kind of sticks out when they start something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the biggest success we had was really the one about two months ago with the machine and frankly, uh, what we've seen over the last two weeks. But in terms of early successes, it was really some of the partnerships that we signed up. Yeah. One of the things that I that I realized pretty quickly was that a, apartment buildings as a whole are looking for a lot of kind of ESG solutions. Yep. And so from their perspective, they're essentially the like the way it works is someone owns a building, they have investors who are physically kind of like providing the capital for it. All of those investors really care about environmental environmental initiatives. And so they're pressuring the landlords or the people that own the property to implement various kind of uh, energy saving as well as waste reducing initiatives within their building. And so very early on, I mean, like when I first started the company and it was truly in my basement and there was cobwebs and like <laughs> mess, we signed up like 10 buildings over the course of a week 
because just um, all of these buildings were like, hey, yes, we need something to reduce our consumer waste. We get way too many Amazon packages. We get too much cardboard. We get too much plastic. And like already I was like, oh, shoot, like how the hell do I service all these buildings? Like I, I don't want to drive out to Worcester and I don't want to drive out to Cohasset in order to service these buildings. Like, great that you want this product. But um, I think that was kind of when I realized like, hey, there is something here. Not only do I think consumers want something like this, but there's a lot of great partnerships to be had when you're doing something yeah. that's ultimately sustainable yeah that's awesome and like two things so one like with the esg thing i see that a lot in my industry a lot of people are interested in just esg investing and all that so yeah. you've seen a lot more of those portfolios come out in the last probably like three or four years um and then like to what you said like two weeks or a month ago like you would down out like i don't even know why i'm doing this and then that's this is what happens though when you when you're a business owner like all of a sudden like you just you want to give up one week you had the worst week you've had in two years and then like a month later you like, I, I don't know how I'm going to service all of these people. Like, it's just like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And then it explodes. And you're like, this is why I'm doing this again. But that's kind of like the first, I mean, you know, I, I have a couple of businesses, like the first like three to five years, you're creating all of those relationships. And that's the hardest part. And they come in waves. And then eventually you've created so many relationships that there's always going to be something that comes to keep you stable. And then eventually a big thing will pop most likely through all these relationships. But that that's kind of like the nature uh, of being a business owner is just those waves, just riding them every once in a while. No, I, I mean, absolutely. And I, th I think a lot of it was I really did invest upfront in some of those relationships, exactly as you described, where yeah. like this milkman model that I've been operating over the last two years, it's expensive to operate. And so yeah. you see all these like 15 minute delivery companies that are like delivering for free. And it's like, look, the reality is like, you, you can't deliver for free in 15 minutes. It's, it's, <laughs> it's expensive to have a delivery individual and to like go and bring products from A to B. And so I, I was investing in all these relationships. And finally, two weeks ago, one of them hits and suddenly it's, hey, can you go and install these machines in 16 locations in Chicago? And hey, we've got these five locations in Boston and we've got 15 locations in New York. And I'm like, oh man, I, I only have four machines and I've got 16 coming in April. Like maybe I could do Chicago, but wow. it, it, it's, it, that's exactly right. It, you have to invest in relationships yep. and it creates that cyclicality of like one week, it's great. And you're, you're kind of spending all of your time and resources, keeping someone happy and yep. eventually it kind of hopefully pays off. So. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Like people think business is sales if business is relationships. Like, your business yeah. comes from relationships. And it's just, when you're new, you're just trying to talk to as many people as you can, uh, meet as many people as possible to see which one is going to give you that business. And then slowly over time, it just becomes a lot more consistent, you know, just due to the longevity of relationships, you know? So let's get into, you know, let's, if you if you want to, let's get into the machines themselves. Uh, you've alluded yeah. to them a couple of times. Uh, so give us a little background, just, I guess, uh, knowledge into what the machines are and what do they do? Yeah, absolutely. Essentially kind of the, the, the idea behind the machines were, Hey, it's great to run this milkman model, but ultimately delivery costs are really expensive. And yeah. When, again, when people want hand soap, they want it right then and there. If they need laundry detergent, they need it right then and there. And so it's great that Amazon can deliver a product in two days, but what's better than two days, like zero days. Yeah. And so I, I ran that milkman, milkman model in one, of one day deliveries. So I was trying to beat Amazon there, but I said, can I even improve on that? And so about like six months into the process, I started investing behind these machines 
with the idea being, can we give people products right in their home? Can we find a solution that's more convenient than CVS? Can we find a solution that's more convenient than Amazon and ultimately give them kind of a refill solution directly in their homes? And so we had been kind of investing in those machines over the course of like a year or so, finally got our first ones in kind of uh, like early winter, late fall, had some kind of configuring to do there, um, ultimately installed them in four locations or four locations, three in the Boston area, one in the New York area. Yeah in the apartment complexes that we had been partnering with for some time. And again, kind of relationship based where it's, Hey, like we've been servicing you, we've been investing in you come and try out these machines, try them for free. Don't pay us anything kind of upfront. But this idea being you represent hundreds of properties throughout North America over time, we would love to be exposed to some of those new buildings. Um, And so we'd install these machines directly in kind of their lobby or in their laundry rooms and residents of those buildings, instead of running to a CVS or ordering a product on Amazon, just walk down to their lobby with whatever container it is that they have, hold it up to the machine and out comes laundry detergent directly into their container. And so zero waste, none of the plastics ending up in the recycling or any sort of waste stream whatsoever, and just really enables people to get their products on demand. It's actually cheaper products. And so if you look at like I sell seventh generation, which is like a Unilever product that people have in like Walmart and so forth. And if you if you look at that product, I'm selling it for about 20% cheaper than what you'd buy on Amazon than what wow. you'd buy at Walmart. Um, and essentially, I'm able to do that with all of my products because I'm buying in such bulk. Yeah. I buy them in 50-gallon drums or five-gallon drums, and I'm dispensing kind of directly out of the, there. So I'm offering essentially a savings discount, a convenience discount, and ultimately a sustainability discount of sorts. Yeah. And, it's, I'm, I'm kind of trying to marry up all these concepts of like, can I make it the ultimate inconvenience? Can I make it cheaper? And can I make it more sustainable? And really, the machines have enabled us to do exactly that. So that that's kind of the future of the business and kind of the, the core of the business today and where I want to spend a lot more of my time. Wow. Yeah, that's unbelievable. The convenience factor, especially this day and age with how fast paced everything is like everyone. I mean, I feel what it was. I ordered something off Amazon. I think it was like Sunday morning, but it was like early. It was like 7 a.m. I got it that night, right? Like, it's just like, yeah. like, I can go to Target and grab it. I'm like, eh, I don't need to leave. I think that's when we got the snowstorm anyways. But yeah, like the convenience factor with fast pace, like that's what everybody wants right now. It's just the convenience factor. So if you're doing something like that, that's that's fantastic on a lot of levels. And how big are these machines, I guess? Like, is this something that people, like, do people already have them in their homes or is that the eventual goal? Is it mainly, how, and where else are they located? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're about the size of an ATM machine. And so they okay. stock four or five gallon drums underneath them. So they need to be kind of around that size. And they're primarily in apartment complexes that are between yeah. 200 and 500 units. Okay. And so we have one today in the Kensington. We've got one that's about to be installed in a building called 2020 out in Cambridge. Kensington's in downtown Boston. Yep. We've got one in the Bower, uh, which just won a bunch of sustainability awards, uh, which is in the Fenway area. And I've got one down here in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, that's about a 500-unit apartment building down here. We're, we're also in discussion with Watertown Muse out in the Watertown area. My grandmother grew up out there. It's right next to Belmont. And so yep. for, for me, it felt like I was kind of like servicing my home, which was a pretty cool feeling. Yeah. Um, and so we've got two that are being installed there in April. Um, and we've got a couple other buildings that we're also planning on installing in April. So. That's awesome. So yeah, so you're going after mainly just the apartment complex 
uh, buildings just from just because of the size factor and how many people are in there. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So, so frankly, we kind of had a two pronged approach as it was related to or as it relates to our milkman model where we had some public settings. And so we enable folks who were stopping by their local mall or stopping by their favorite coffee store to, yeah. to ultimately make that sort of exchange. And as I think about these machines, they're kind of perfect for that situation as well. Yeah, um, but kind of upfront in terms of like these machines are expensive, and we needed a certain amount of demand and a certain level of convenience, and so it actually made more sense to partner with the apartment complexes upfront, but really with the long term idea being eventually installing these in grocery stores and installing them yeah. in malls and installing them in kind of more public settings. So yeah, hopefully can do that soon as well. Um, but upfront tends to be apartment complexes yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense um that was my next question like where like where are you installing these and then so if like say like the laundry detergent one say it's like the size of the atm machine is there like one for laundry detergent and then one for dish detergent no so that so it's actually all together so oh. the, the machine's about the size of an atm and there's four drums underneath it and so for the laundry detergent or sorry for each machine they dispense laundry detergent dish soap hand soap and multi-surface spray Oh, wow. um, in, in theory, I could stock anything. If you go on our website, I run the milkman model for sunscreen and moisturizer and face cleanser and like body wash, shampoo, conditioner. In theory, yeah. I could pump anything through it. Yeah. Uh, but those tend to be some of the higher volume products. And so if, if we're going to reduce waste, might as well do it for kind of the highest volume type products. It's the most waste that you can ultimately offset. And from a sales perspective and from a business perspective, that obviously makes the most sense. And so yeah. started with home care products. Yeah, no, I, that, absolutely. People go through that stuff all the time. Wow, that's fantastic. Just the one size of an ATM machine, you have that many products that people can just go in and fill up. So and yeah. what, does it, what does it cost if people fill it up? Like, I don't, I don't know what, you know, a regular size dish detergent bottle is. I don't know if it's like a quart, but like, what does that roughly look like if people are going to fill that up? Yeah, so, so the one that I know off the top of my head is a 12-ounce bottle of hand soap. Like the vast majority of hand soaps that people get tend to be about kind of that 12-ounce and so I, I partnered with a company called Puracy. It's an all-natural brand that sells like sulfate-free, paraben-free type product. And so it, it is more premium product in that sense. They sell directly on their website that same 12-ounce bottle for $6.99. If you go on Amazon, they're selling it for $6.99. I'm selling it for $5.50. And so again, it's about a 20 to the 23%, I think, is the number discount relative to them. And I also run discounts all the time. And so yeah. you can find my product 20% off or 15% off once a month for like a three-day period of time. And so yeah. typically it's about a 23% discount, but more often than not, you can get it for like 30%, 40% off. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's awesome. So you mentioned, so you're in, you're in Massachusetts. You're in, is it Jersey or New York, you said? Broader New York. And yeah. So we're in Hoboken right now, but yeah. Uh, we have kind of a planned launch in a couple uh, buildings in downtown New York as well. Okay. Uh, and you had mentioned uh, possibly Chicago as well. Like as far as like the future goes, like is the goal eventually, you know, nationwide or are you trying to stick to a certain area? Or? Yeah. I mean, urban settings definitely make the most sense up front. Yeah. Um, just the population density can be really impactful. If you're going to install a machine that dispenses all of these products, it's better to serve as many people from the same machine as you possibly can. As opposed to if I put this in the middle of the field and only five people can access it, the machine's probably creating more waste than I'm actually offsetting. Yeah, um, And so it makes sense to do these kind of high rise type cities. And so New York, Boston, Chicago are all perfect for that. 
Um, Miami might make sense at some point. San Francisco might make sense. There's a, there's a bunch of companies out in California that are doing similar things, although not with the machines. Yep. There's companies down in LA that have vans and you can like schedule the van to come and like pour the products. There's a whole bunch of really cool oh, wow. companies out there. But if you think about the machines themselves, it tends to make sense to go as vertical as you possibly can or cities that are as vertical. And so up front, I tend to partner with cities like that. But over time, hopefully... You're right. Like, hopefully I can install these in grocery stores in kind of the middle of nowhere, uh, like Ohio or kind of some random state. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, Are there any like misconceptions about what it is you guys do or the company or just the product in general that people have? I, I, I'm I trying to think of kind of good ones. There, there's a whole bunch of kind of misconceptions as it relates to reuse. There, at, at one point, there was a massive kind of like COVID fear. And so a whole bunch of like, Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks stopped these reusable coffee mugs. There's a hundred different studies out there that suggest you're not going to get COVID from a reusable coffee mug. That's like near impossible. Yeah. And and nonetheless, they were just like, nope, outright. We're not doing it. We're not touching it. I I, I don't want to touch it. And so that was kind of a frustration of sorts, um, but definitely a misconception. So that's one. I mean, the misconception about kind of recycling being just as good as reduction or reuse is kind of another misconception out there. As it relates to my program specifically, I think the milkman model, like it makes sense to some people who remember the milkman model. I'm I'm a little bit younger. I never had a milkman. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I kind of heard about it secondhand. But for a lot of people, they don't understand physically how it works. They're like, hey, I... I leave this and then there's another product and is there a waiting period? And yeah. um, that definitely took a lot of explanation um, and was a tough marketing sell. Ultimately, we, we spent a bunch of money on like videos to help explain exactly how it all worked. And we've got this cute little cartoon and this guy whistling. And <laughs> so, yeah, def- definitely some misconceptions, but we, we figured it out. And I think it's going a little bit smoother now, um, now that I've had a bunch of help on kind of honing in our marketing and making the message a little bit more clear. Yeah. That's awesome. So as far as like uh, getting into these builds, are you mainly just like boots on the ground, like knocking on doors or like reaching out, like cold calling, like apartment landlords or. Yeah. So, so my COO, so my, my kind of like co-founder of sorts, um, his brother-in-law worked for HubSpot and got us like a, a one year, like free trial of HubSpot. And so we went on like a tear one day where we looked up every single apartment complex in Boston, went to their Facebook page, got their email address, inputted it in HubSpot and just started this campaign that just like sends them an email every week. And like it worked for a period of time. And now everyone just like auto sent us to their trash. And yeah. so like, that worked for a period of time. And that's how I got kind of my first 10 buildings like overnight, which was awesome. Now it tends to be a lot of phone calls, a lot of like intros from... So that really led to like a pretty diverse um, like property management like customer base. And so if you think if you think about the like B2B aspect of my business where it's I'm selling to these apartment complexes, I sold to like all of the largest property managers in North America. And so it's Graystar, Bazudo, JLL, UBS, Intercontinental, like a whole bunch of these really, really large names that manage these properties or these apartment complexes. I essentially, my logic was, hey, I'll invest a whole bunch of time up front in these companies, in these relationships. And they represent hundreds of buildings in all of the major cities throughout North America. And kind of if I can show them that I'm doing a good job, they're going to go and introduce me to the others. And so 
like two weeks ago, I was talking about how overnight uh, one company wanted to bring us to 16 locations in um, Chicago. And again, that was like a referral of sorts where it's I've been servicing this company for a period of time. They really liked what I was doing. And they, as a company, have this imperative to go and figure out kind of environmental and sustainability related amenities. And I was like, hey, I'm perfect for that. And they're like, okay, let me go and introduce you to our entire world. And so in my industry, someone that was new, I think it was last year uh, over in COVID first. So two years ago now, when COVID first hit. He's like, yeah, I can't just like ne- like go out networking and have these like lunches and meet people. So he got like, uh, it was, I think it was like a two week trial to what's called Rocket Reach. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's got all the business owners, with their na- like names, their emails, like work emails, personal emails, like business line and cell phone. And the cell phone was like 75% of the time. It was actually accurate. He's like, okay. he, he did like a two week trial and just cold called and cold emailed like well over a thousand business owners. and. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was like eight to 10 of them that hit. But if you're talking to business owners, like eight to 10 people that hit in a two week period, like that's really good for somebody who's new in an industry. And that just kind of led to, you know, so you just, I I just, I made me think of that when you said you just went ham one day and just reached out to a whole bunch of people through HubSpot. Yeah. And, 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 and we did the same thing with phone calls as well. And so we've got like a massive database of all of the buildings that we've ever reached out to. And you're right. It's like over a thousand by now. And it's, I, it actually tracks like, hey, I've called them eight times and like on these days and I've emailed them four times and it, it's pretty wild. It's hard to get the right contact, which is yeah. super, super important. But uh, it, yeah, no, it was a lot of kissing frogs, so to speak. Yeah, yeah for sure. Is there anything about the company before we you know uh, tail off? For the Is there uh, anything about the company that we haven't chatted about, haven't asked about or? You want to make sure you get the word out on? No, I mean, I mean, the biggest thing is really just this good filling stations. Like it's cheaper, it's more convenient, it's more accessible, it's uh, better for the environment. I think that's that's really the biggest one as it relates to the company. The only other pitch I'll throw in here is yeah. um, I started a like a, effectively a nonprofit, although we haven't technically registered as a nonprofit. Yeah. Um, but it's called Reusable New England. It's a whole bunch of it was essentially like four or five different folks that all started it. Um, but it's people from really large organizations, Oceana, as well as Upstream, as well as a, a few different kind of sustainability led businesses. And we started Reusable New England with the idea being let's really push reuse in a circular economy, as they call it. Um, in New England as much as we possibly can. And so we started that. We have a website. It's reusablenewengland.com. We've got like 30 or 40 different members that all participate on like a monthly basis. And uh, we like reach out to restaurants, for example, and talk to them about the pros and cons of what are the right plastic takeout containers to be using? Are there kind of more sustainable solutions should they be including utensils in every single delivery or should they ask their customers, do you need utensils? And yeah. can that lead to a cost savings, but a waste savings as well? And so that, that's kind of just been a passion project of mine over, over late. And I developed their whole website and I, I've kind of fallen in love with it. And again, yeah. we were talking earlier about kind of networking and relationships being every everything. Like the, the head of the US EPA who awarded me ultimately a $5,000 grant um, or awarded Good Filling a $5,000 grant um, from Massachusetts, like she sits on that and she's now an active oh. member in that. And so it's, it for me, some of it was kind of the relationships and getting to know people in the industry. And some of it was also, hey, there's a massive opportunity and I'm touching one part of it, but let's kind of tackle the larger thing as well. And so um, that that's just a little pitch. If anyone... Yeah. 
about reuse or cares about kind of waste in general, that's a really, really great organization to get involved with. And we'd love for more people to join that. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I'm glad you mentioned it. Absolutely, man. So it sounds like, I mean, you work nonstop, it sounds like. What, outside of work, what is uh, what are some of the hobbies that you enjoy doing? Yeah. Yeah. I I, I mean, it's kind of cheesy, but I I like a lot of outdoor uh, activities. I mean, not super surprisingly. And frankly, that's why Boston's my home and why I love Boston so much. It's like outdoor activities. It doesn't get better. You get the beach, you get like hiking, you get skiing, you get just about everything. You get like breweries. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, for me, it's hiking, surfing, skiing, breweries. They are kind of my, my four big ones. That's awesome. Nice, man. Uh, so before we wrap it up, last couple of questions yeah. that I like to ask business owners, what what would be a piece of advice you would give someone who's looking to start their own business? Yeah, keep your head down. I mean, yeah. we were talking earlier about how things come in waves. It's like, yeah. look, you, you, you got to be like passionate about it to a T. Like if, if you're kind of like easygoing about it and you like care one day and the next day you don't care about it. Like if, if three weeks ago, if four weeks ago, I wasn't like, Hey, I've got to do something about this. My generation needs a solution for waste. And if I don't solve this, our world is going to be in shambles. Um, If I didn't have that level of passion, like I wouldn't have stuck around as long as I did. And so it's, it's kind of like a pick an industry that you're passionate about and care about um, because there's virtually no way to like, get through all of the challenges you're bound to face. I mean, everyone knows it's never a straight line. There's a whole bunch of ups and downs. And so it's kind of like, keep your head down, even though you're down one day, like you'll see something else in two weeks time. And so I I guess that's my best. uh, Oh, oh, actually, sorry. Apologies. I've got one more. It's also just recognize your strengths and weaknesses. Like I'm terrible at marketing. I didn't have the Instagram. I didn't have the TikTok. Like you got to realize that you're bad at it and like quickly like... (laughs) Thing around yourself that yeah. it kind of highlights your strengths, but also kind of builds around some of your weaknesses. So no, that's I, my- no, I think that's great. And to what you said, being a business owner, being an entrepreneur, like it sounds cool. And like so many people, especially with COVID uh, hit, like so many people want to start their own business uh, because it sounds cool, but you really got to be passionate about it because if you're not passionate about it, you, I mean, starting your business, you're going to have so many failures before you get that one big success. Uh, and if you're not passionate about it, those failures are just going to knock you down and you're just going to give up eventually. So I think I think yeah. what you said about being passionate, it's like incredibly important to start your own business. It's also expensive. It's like yeah. a costly enterprise to get into. You got to invest in insurance yep. and starting yep. the company and, X, and building a website and so yep. on and so forth. And yep. um, there's also a relationship drain where it's like, hey, you're marketing to your friends and family for a really long period of time and yep. you're using some of kind of your relationship chips. And no, I totally agree. So last question I ask every guest on Boss's Best is we all have varying depictions of what success looks like to us. So yeah. how would you define success? Yeah. I, I mean, that's like near impossible. Like every, every book that I've ever read tries to define success in another way. I think oh, like fundamentally it's, it, it's like a satisfaction with yourself and, and, and feeling like fulfilled, which, which ironically is kind of a moving target of sorts where it's like, Hey, I can always do more. I can take on more. I could like, Hey, I don't like X, Y, Z in my own life, or I don't like I, I need to go and make more friends or I need to work out more X, Y, and Z. But I, I think for me, it's kind of that moving target of like, am I fulfilled with what I'm doing? Am I spending my time and resources in an area that I care about? And I mean, fundamentally, that's why I started Good Filling was 
like, hey, hey, great that I'm making money doing finance or I'm like doing X, Y, and Z. But I, I realized that's at a sacrifice of my own mental health. Like I, mm-hmm. I absolutely hated what I was doing, like yeah. my own physical health. I wasn't working out. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't investing in my friends and family the way I wanted to be. And so I think more than anything, it's just like kind of filling your own time and your own kind of life with stuff that you want to be doing. And so that that's success to me, I guess. Perfect. No, I think it's a fantastic answer. I think truthfully, uh, with COVID the last two years, I think it put things in perspective for myself too of what's really important in life. You know, I got I got a little girl now, I got a three month old daughter. Like that changed the perception of everything. Like nothing else matters to me as much anymore than her. You know what I mean? Like she's got yeah. daycare. Like somebody's like, hey, I need to meet at this time. I'm like, sorry, like I get to pick her up at daycare. Like it's just like this. Yeah. That is the number one priority now. And things, so many things changed. I think COVID just really highlighted the most important pieces of life and. Uh, it's not always financially driven like a lot of people might think it is, you know? You're exactly right, though. It changes all the time. You have a kid and suddenly Constantly. it changes. And before you have a kid, it makes sense. Like you want to make some money and you want to yeah. support the kid and you want to do X, Y, and Z. And so it's it's a moving target in that sense. And you kind of have to always. adapt as it goes. Yeah, always, man. Petros, thank you very much for coming on Boston's Best to chat about Good Feeling, man. I appreciate the time. It was fun having you on. I love everything that you're doing. It, 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 was, it was awesome chatting with you and really appreciate you taking the time this morning. Absolutely, man. All right. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to say thank you for checking out my podcast. I really do appreciate the love I've received for this show. I believe now more than ever, any exposure to local businesses is great for them to receive. And I'm trying to do my part. If you are a local business owner or someone you know in the Boston area that would like to be featured on the podcast, please email me at bostonsbestpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please follow this podcast. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Instagram with the handle at Boston's Best underscore podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com backslash Boston's Best podcast. Again, I truly appreciate the great feedback for this show and stay tuned for each new episode every Friday at 8 a.m. Take care.